0: God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer, amen. To start us off, as we begin to unpack this passage for today, I have a question for you. It is a rhetorical one. I am not expecting you to answer right now. And I am curious how many of you will have an answer that comes to your mind as soon as I ask this question. It's a slightly weird question, just to be fair. And so here it is. I wonder, what does love smell like to you? If you have an answer that is in your head right now and are willing, would you show your hand if you have an answer to this? We have a few. Now, granted, I have been thinking about this question all week long, and so when I think about what love smells like, there are a few answers floating around in my mind. But when I came across this question and reflected on it as I was preparing for this week, the very first thing that came to my mind was that love smells like my Pop-Pops pipe tobacco. My grandfather was a sailor, and he always always had a pipe close by, and he always smelled like pipe tobacco, no matter how many times my grandmother washed his clothes or sprayed Febreze. He always carried this smell with him. When I was in middle school, my grandparents ended up giving their minivan to my family as our new family car. And for years, and I mean years after we acquired this van, from time to time, we would be riding in it, and suddenly, out of nowhere, we would catch the smell of pipe tobacco, and we would say, hi, Pop Pop. We knew he wasn't physically there with us, but in that moment, the smell of his pipe would instantly transport us back to all of the memories that we had with him and how we would feel when we gathered with him. So what does your kind of love, what does love smell like to you? Maybe it is a dozen of your favorite flowers or the smell of your favorite meal being cooked, preferably by someone other than yourself. Maybe it is a place where you can go and you know that you are seen and accepted for just who you are. But maybe love smells like a house that is filled with the scent of a very expensive perfume, a smell so strong and so powerful you can't escape it. No matter how many times you open the windows and you wash the floors and you shake out the carpets, the smell lingers in the air for days after the party is over. Vladimir Nabokov says, smells are surer than sights or sounds to make your heartstrings crack. The way that Mary shows her love for Jesus is a somewhat smelly event. In fact, several of the stories that we read in our Bible that involve Mary and Martha and Lazarus have a smell about them. In Luke 10, we first meet Mary and Martha when Jesus comes to their house. I'm sure that this is a familiar story to you. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him, and Martha is in the kitchen, cooking up a feast. Then in John chapter 11, the chapter just before our passage for today, we again are given the opportunity to engage with our sense of smell as we read scripture. In John 11, Lazarus has died. And after he has been buried for four days, Jesus finally arrives, and he arrives at Lazarus' tomb and commands that the stone be rolled away. Martha advises Jesus against this, because surely no one gathered, mourning their friend and their brother, needs to experience what a dead body smells like. But nevertheless, the stone is moved Jesus calls out to Lazarus, and Lazarus comes out living and breathing in front of them. Today's story is also filled with smells. We know that a great dinner is being served, and Martha is again preparing a meal as she does best. Jesus and the disciples were at this house, and so I imagine the room was filled with delicious smelling things. Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus, and while he is now living and breathing, I wonder if the smell from inside that tomb lingered on his clothes or in his hair. Mary enters the room and again finds herself at Jesus' feet. Maybe no one noticed this at first. They were used to Mary being around. But soon her presence and her actions are impossible to ignore. Mary opens a jar of expensive perfume, which in these days probably would not have been a liquid like we are used to, but would have been a solid like a lotion or an ointment. And when Mary opens the jar that contains a pound of expensive, exquisite perfume, the entire house is filled with its fragrance. You can't ignore it or escape it. But in addition to not being able to ignore what was happening with the smells in the room, it also would have been impossible to ignore Mary's actions. It was common in these days for servants or women to wash the feet of men as they came in from their travels and before they ate a meal. But this isn't a normal story of Mary just washing Jesus' feet. Mary takes the perfume and she anoints the feet of Jesus. And then after she has done that, she takes her long hair and she uses it to wipe Jesus' feet. Definitely not a normal part of a dinner party then or now. But it is a powerful scene indeed, especially when we look at the bigger picture. If Jesus had been anointed on his head, like we read in Mark 14, this would have been an anointing for a king. But Mary doesn't anoint Jesus' head. She anoints his feet and this type of anointing was done to prepare a body for burial. In fact, it is very possible that the perfume that Mary uses here to prepare Jesus' still living body for burial may have been used in the not-so-distant past to prepare, to prepare the body of her now-living-again brother, Lazarus, as he died and was placed in the tomb. I wonder if the smell of the perfume lingered on the feet of Lazarus, who was sitting not so far from Jesus. The image of Mary at the feet of Jesus knelt in an act of true love, devotion, and discipleship is a powerful one. Here we have a woman who's preparing Jesus's body, but also her own heart for what lies ahead. The disciples are present, but as they so often do, they still do not fully understand what the next six days will hold. But Mary knows And Mary understands. She isn't saving her love for Jesus until after he dies, but she is offering it to him while he lives. Mary is modeling what true discipleship and extravagant love can look like for those of us who have received the love of Christ. I also think that it is important to point out that the verb that is used in verse 3 to describe Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair is found only one other time in the Gospels, and that is in John 13, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. In just a few short days, the roles will be different. Jesus will be the one kneeling at the feet of his friends and showing them what discipleship looks like. And I'm sure that as Jesus is kneeling at the feet of his friends, the smell of this costly perfume would still be lingering on Jesus' skin and in the noses of the disciples. Even as Jesus is on the cross and Mary and the other women are gathered below him, I'm sure they are catching glimpses of this perfume. As Jesus' body is placed in the tomb, I wonder if the smell of the perfume wafted by them, and if they remembered the meal in Bethany, where love was poured out like a costly perfume, and if their spirits were filled with a long, lingering fragrance. I wonder if when they smelled this perfume or encountered the smell of this perfume years later, if they were transported right back to that place where they remembered what love smells like. In the midst of this intimate and holy moment between Jesus, we only have a reaction from one of the disciples, and that disciple is Judas. He appears to be dumbfounded by Mary's actions because they could have used this money for much more important things, like taking care of the poor. The writer of this Gospel lets us know that Judas doesn't actually care about taking care of the poor, but he is putting up a good front and acting like he was trying to think of others who are in need. This week I was listening to a podcast about this passage, and the hosts of the podcast posed an interesting thought that I hadn't considered considered before. They said, we know today, in our time, that Jesus, that Judas doesn't care for the poor. But what if he is pretending to use his concern for the poor as a way to distract us and maybe distract himself from the thing that he is really bothered by? Judas is pretending to be bothered by Mary's wastefulness and her disregard for the poor among them. But what he is actually bothered by is the idea that someone could love a person so deeply that they would be willing to give up their most precious gift for that person even if it means giving up their life. The Gospel of John is filled with stories about abundance and extravagance and relationships with love that extends beyond our expectations. We see Jesus' first miracle when he turns water into wine and there are more gallons of wine left over than any multi-day wedding party could consume. We see him on the shores of the lake, multiplying bread and fish for more than 5,000 people, and there is still enough to spare. John 3.16 tells us that God's love for the world was so abundant and so expansive that God could not be contained to the heavens any longer, and that God had to come and dwell among us. Everywhere we look in the Gospel of John, we see examples of extravagant and abundant love. Now, at the end of our passage for today, Jesus says a familiar phrase, one that we often try to remember. He says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, we could spend an entire other sermon unpacking what Jesus means by this, but what I think that Jesus is trying to do in this moment is to teach his disciples one last time that the kind of love that Mary has shown Jesus, this extravagant, abundant love, is the kind of love that we should be showing to others. A no-holds-barred kind of love, an overflowing, unending kind of love, a love that doesn't stop when the world gets uncomfortable and says, okay, that's enough, but keeps going and going until there is no place on earth and no person alive who doesn't know that they are known by the God of extravagant love. Ultimately, Judas rejects this invitation to receive extravagant love. For whatever reason, he wasn't able to allow it to be a part of his life, and when he rejects it, he rejects Jesus. He gives in to fear and to doubt and turns Jesus into the chief priests and he betrays the one who loved him more than any other. For whatever reason, he was not able to accept that he too is worthy of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. This week I hope you will take some time to reflect on these verses from John 12 and maybe ask yourself this question. Who am I in this story? I know that many of us will proudly claim that we are Mary, giving of all we have to God and to others. And I know that there are many of you in this room who are indeed like Mary more days than you are not. And the rest of us in this room are able to be like Mary from time to time in our own lives. But I also wonder if you ever find yourself like Judas, I wonder if you have ever wondered if you are worthy of the love of God. I wonder if you have questioned whether or not you could love someone with so much abundance that you would give up all that you can. I'm sure that there are some of us sitting in this room today who have asked ourselves these questions once or twice, and some of us who ask them all the time. But here is the good news for today, my friends. Jesus' journey to the cross includes Mary and Judas. It includes the one who is faithful and who devotes all she has, and it includes the one who is unfaithful and who steals and betrays. Both are included, and the fact that they are both with Jesus until his final hours tells us more about Jesus than it does about Mary and Judas, but it also tells us a lot about the inclusive nature of God's grace and the expansive reach of Christ's love. So know that wherever you find yourself today or in the days ahead, whether you feel like Mary or you feel like Judas, there is nothing you can do to make God turn away from you. There is nothing you can do to earn God's love because God's love has already been given to you freely, no questions asked. You have already been given the gift of abundant love and eternal life. And for that we say, Thanks be to God.